0: Geek Top 5, Quarantine Edition.
1: Yay! There was time now. There was was all the time I needed.
0: Geek Top 5, I'm Jesse. I'm Graham. And this is episode 101, which is less exciting than episode 100, but hey, you know what? It's still cool that we're in the triple digits. It's the start of a brave new era. Yeah, there you go. The three-digit era. It's Geek Top 5, the next generation. Ooh, I don't know if we want to go that far. <laughs> In any case, we're we're back. We're here for another week. We're here to try something a little bit new. Uh, not so much a Top 5 format, but uh, something we've wanted to do for a little bit that may take a couple of episodes, actually. Um, but I guess, what are we going to call this one? Is this, like, t- Tweaking Trek? Does that sound good? Uh that could be. I
1: mean, it sounds a little druggy, but, you know, nothing wrong with that. We we are hooked on it. Uh in my head I was calling it like Trek rewrites, but hey, we
0: we really got to work out these titles before we start recording. Well, either way, I think you can see where this is going. Um let's lay down the specifics. What we're doing, we're looking at Star Trek the the movies. I want to say the motion pictures, but that's a little bit confusing. Um we um well, we, you know, some of these movies are good, some of them are bad, um, but even the best of them could use, you know, just a little bit of tweaking. And, uh, you know, who is more qualified to do that than us? <laughs> Probably a lot of people, but they're not here, so oh, you're going to have to... I disagree entirely, <laughs> sir. Well, yeah. You and your thumb twiddling, I don't know anybody <laughs> who can compare to what we got in this department.
1: I am very excited about this. I, I uh, put some thought into it, got some got some ideas and I hope that uh, I hope we can
0: make some some uh, excellent changes to these movies. So the assumptions going into this, uh, you know, the we are probably not going to limit ourselves based on you know the available budget at the time. Uh, we're gonna play. You know, we're not going to worry about actors' availability. We're just gonna go in and say, you know what? I thought this was weird, or I think this could have been better, and we're gonna just patch it up. And at the end of this episode, I think we're just gonna start with the first six, the supposedly the Kirk movies, you could call them. And at the end of this episode, uh, we may have a blueprint for I don't know remasters? We still haven't come up with them. You're right. We need to t- work on the titles. But uh, enough prevaricating. I think everyone gets it. We will shoot for, I mean, I want to say like about 10 minutes per movie makes sense. But I mean, I feel like there are some movies we're going to spend a lot of time on and some that we are you know, only need just a light glaze. So we'll take it as it comes. Okay, so
1: let's start at the beginning. Uh, Star Trek The Motion Picture originally released December 7th, 1979, directed by Robert Weiss. Screenwriter Harold Livingston with a story by Alan Dean Foster and I, I have to, well, Roddenberry doesn't look like he gets a writer credit on it, but I know he was heavily involved and he wrote the novelization for it, so let's throw Gene Roddenberry in there too. Um, you want to do a quick
0: rundown of the plot? Uh, sure. It's been several years in canon since start, since you know, since Star Trek, uh, and the crew has since gone their separate ways. And the Enterprise has been rebuilt almost from the ground up, and is about to go on its maiden voyage with a new crew. When a giant, mysterious alien entity is approaching Earth, and the recently rebuilt Enterprise is the only thing you know, standing between Earth and whatever that thing is. Uh, the a
1: common theme in the movies.
0: Yeah, both the Enterprise being the only ship available and that it barely works, which is something we got to go over in these tweaks. But the senior staff get back together. There is a lot of nothing happens for a while. Uh, (laughs) Then they get it, and it turns out that the alien ship is actually a probe from the Voyager program, uh, which is sent out to, you know, in the Bay back i think they still say in the 90s, even though I don't think we ever actually launched a Voyager 6— Um, But it's gone out there, and it's now, like, been modified by a machine race, and it comes back to Earth looking for its creator. There is some serious weirdness with some secondary characters who don't get much screen time, and uh, at the end of the day, they, you know, the alien is appeased, and Earth is saved. So, first things first. And... Even as I say that, there are a lot of things I want to tackle first. But let's hit first things first. The first half hour of this movie can go, right? Uh, well, okay. I, I'm going to just put it out here. This was the
1: the hardest one I had. Because I don't know how you fix it without making a completely different movie. And that's not to say I don't like the movie. There's, there is stuff that's good in it. But it's... A rehash of a plot from an original series episode, it's got beautiful special effects, but they spend so long on them and, like, languishing on them that it takes up
0: a ton of time... There is an incredible sequence at the start of this movie that I think is 11 minutes long, where it's Kirk and Scotty in the shuttle pod slowly flying towards the Enterprise. <laughs> and they, they're really proud of their new model of the Enterprise and the, the orchestra And they should smells. be. It's beautiful. It's, it's beautiful, yeah, but I'm not exaggerating that amount of time. And it gets ludicrous. And they keep finding, like, they're trying to find other things to do, so they keep, like, cutting back to Shatner's face, like, looking like, hmm, yes, the Enterprise. Then they cut back to the ship, and this goes on forever. And that's really the problem with the start of this, is that the the start of this movie, 30, 40 minutes in, what we've got is the gang is back together, um, the Enterprise barely works, there's some conflict between Kirk and the actual captain of the Enterprise, this new character Willard Decker. And uh, super Trek nerds will recognize the connection to Commodore Matthew Decker from the Doomsday Machine. But they never make that explicit in the movie, which is a right. weird choice. Well, I mean, Decker is a weird choice because there's not a lot there. But I'm just saying that like, we're, a, we're halfway through this movie before the Enterprise is on its way to meet the alien. So something there has got to give. And I think that's where we start.
1: Okay, I think even before that, we start with the uniforms. They are <laughs> awful, just terrible uniforms. There's there's no consistency with them. They're all unflatteringly tight and unisex, and and it is distracting through the whole thing. And they change them constantly. Like, every scene change, someone's in a different outfit, and they all look bad.
0: This has a very 70s look to it. Um, And not just with the uniforms all over the place, but yeah, the uniforms suffer for sure. That's an easy fix. Let's upgrade those to the red tunics from the rest of the movies. Sure. Right? That's check, done. The next part, I mean, okay, you want to hit small things before we hit big things. I, I, I do like that. You know, Kirk has moved on with his life. They say he's chief of Starfleet operations now, and but he's, you know, he's jonesing to get back in the captain's chair. And that 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 now he's in conflict with this Deckard character. I sort of feel like there should have been more of that. I say, suppose you start this movie where the Enterprise is already in space. Where Captain Decker is now in command, and because of this crisis, you know, Admiral Kirk, and Ev- I, I, I kind of want the rest of the senior staff to just be there, having to recover wild man McCoy and weird religious Spock, like, like that's just, none of that needs to be there. The Enterprise <laughs> is already in space, Decker's in command, Crisis Hits. Kirk, you know, you're watching the movie, you're like, oh, who's this new crew? That's interesting. I recognize Chekhov, at least. What's going on? There's a crisis. What's going to happen? Kirk comes onto the ship, and now there's tension between who's in command and who's not. I feel like you're hitting all the same story beats. It can be done in 10 minutes. We can get to the interesting part of the movie. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. It's
1: just, it's hard, though, if you already... Like, why would Decker be in command and not Spock or Sulu or, or any of the other characters who have presumably gone up in rank over the last ten years? I mean, Spock is a captain at this point, right? And and yet... Is he? Because it looks like he's not even part of Starfleet anymore in this movie. <laughs> well, as soon as he's back on board, he's back in a Starfleet uniform and, and traipsing around like he owns the place. Yeah, but he
0: starts on a Vulcan hippie commune. Like, <laughs> I think he's just on. Well, yeah, he's on Vulcan. He's doing culinary yeah. to try and purge his emotions or whatever. And there's the incredibly slow moving scene written in Vulcan where it's, "You have not purged your emotions, Spock." It's a being reaches to you from the stars and appeals to your human half, and you're sitting here going, "Uh huh." <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's uh,
1: it's not. It's not great. It's a lot of of. Uh, it's. There's a lot that happens there that doesn't really factor into anything going forward, and and like you were saying about Wildman McCoy with his giant beard and his uh, cool '70s medallion, uh, when when he finally comes on board, he's he very quickly just falls back into his old pattern, and and we get Nurse Chapel, who's now Doctor Chapel, and I don't know, maybe we would have liked to see
0: some conflict there, like McCoy getting in on her, her territory. Yeah, there's a lot of room for characterization in this movie, I think, that was completely skipped over. And speaking of which, maybe it's time to move to another uncomfortable one, is Ilya, or Ilya, I forget how it's pronounced, I think it's Ilya, the Delton.
1: Yeah, I, I. they don't really get into, I think, enough information about what a Delton is, other than, in a very Roddenberry way, it's all sex stuff.
0: Yep. <laughs> And to be fair, they cut most of that from the movie, except for one incredibly awkward line, which just makes it worse, right? Yeah. yeah. she she shows up on the bridge, uh, it's welcome aboard, you know, like a young bald woman, and she turns to Shatner and says, "My oath of celibacy is on record, Captain." <laughs> and you're sitting there in the audience, going, "What the f- is the? What the hell was that?" Yeah. And
1: then she and and Decker are making eyes, and they've they've got a very Riker Troy past relationship thing going on that isn't touched on nearly enough. Again, it's like there's too many characters on here, and none of them have enough to do.
0: Uh, And let's be clear, this is kind of a good thing in her case. For those of you who don't spend your free time browsing Star Trek trivia, the concept for the Delton race of aliens. They have two key features. First, they're bald. Yeah, hairless except for eyelashes. Except for eyelashes, of course. And second, apparently, Delton's sex so good that no human can survive it, and they can barely resist it that's yeah. That's a real thing that they wrote <laughs> what' well, very Roddenberry. I mean, uh, I get the seventies were pretty groovy <laughs> but like, oh, like they were smart enough to cut most of that out, except for that incredibly bizarre celibacy line. But I think we got to ditch Ailea as well. No offense I to the actress. I disagree. I think
1: I was, I was watching it recently, and she is possibly the best actress in The Thing, which is, I don't know, not saying much. No one's on their A-game. Uh, Leonard Nimoy is great as usual, but everyone else is kind of just there. But
0: she is great, I thought. I mean, she. are you talking about her when she's playing her or her when she's playing The Probe? both
1: there's like there's a whole part of the story where she but she's being turned into the probe and uh their her like memory and grams or whatever are still in there and so they're trying to tap into that by using her and decker to like seduce the that side of her out and there's a couple of moments where the like droid facade falls for just a second and you see this like Longing in her face, she—you see the emotions come back, and then it goes away again. And it's so subtle, and like subtle to the point where it feels out of place in a William Shatner movie. And <laughs> uh, it's really good. She's she's great at it.
0: I okay, I'll give you that. Maybe then we have to sort of change her background and change her purpose. Yeah. I mean, she, like, I, what, well, what was her job on the ship? Was she going to be the science officer, or was she help? no She's Helm,
1: and, and because of her, Chekhov sort of gets, like, bumped over to this corner where he's firing phasers occasionally, I think. Or, I don't know, the, the job descriptions in the original series are, are fluid at best.
0: Pretty loose. Okay, so we're going to keep Aaliyah in. Ah, but man, we spend a lot of time with that probe. But, Captain, this is a, a life form, but it is also a machine. Isn't that wild? It's,
1: yeah. Well, yeah. and even more cringy. It's like she when when the probe returns, she returns in the shower, and she walks around in a tiny bathrobe
0: for the whole movie. They, those are things that could be changed as well. Okay, so so our new version, the Enterprise is already in space. Uh, the old crew is mostly in place except for Admiral Kirk. Ilya Ilya's is there. I guess we introduce the relationship or the... You know, it's not a relationship right now, but it definitely was at one point between her and Decker. And boy, isn't that just scandalous. Kirk, the, there's the threat from Viger. Kirk shows up. There's tension about the command. They race to intercept Viger. I'm interested. I'm looking at the new crew. I'm wondering what's going on there. I'm wondering what's going on with the alien. Uh, we, the thing is, now we only have about 40 minutes of film. Well, I
1: mean, that's my problem with this whole movie. Really, I was reading about it, and it was—it's an adaptation of what was going to be the two-hour TV pilot for the Star Trek Phase Two TV series, and then they decided to change it into a movie. And I don't think they changed much. They just added a bunch of padding, and 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 I don't know what you do with that. Like you, you just—I think instead of patting it out with effect shots you pat it out with character stuff so that people have a reason to be there like uhura and sulu and Chekhov are are reduced to tiny roles like they're they're barely
0: present it's kind of a, a slap in the face all right well let me hit you here's what i've got as a solution to this problem very broad strokes I agree with you 100%. Let's get some characterization. Let's you know, McCoy and Dr. Chapel clashing, great. Kirk and Decker clashing, great. Spock mediating all of this and like not understanding any of it and being super logical about it, great. That adds some stuff so we get to learn who these people are again. My second thing, the let's the, the movie opens where we need to show how powerful this alien is so it blows up 3 Klingon warships. And we have the, the benefit of hindsight, know that a lot of these movies are going to revolve around Klingon stuff. So I say, let's have one of these Klingon ships make it and provide sort of a random element. And it can be you know let's t- let's like let's not kill each other and work together for the sake of the crisis. But do we trust each other? And the Klingons just want to blow up the alien while the Enterprise wants to talk to it. And of course, in the end, the Klingons do something stupid, and it's you know now we're antagonists again. But then V'ger blows them up. Like let's add some let's add a Klingon that makes
1: sense in the I like that. And then you you can spend more time with the new Klingon makeup because. In this movie, the the movie opens with shots of the Klingons there on their their ship, dealing with V'ger and talking in uh, James Dewan's, uh Klingonese, and uh, you see the new makeup with the big foreheads Man, and they get their ridges. If you're if you're coming at this from only having watched the original series, I bet you're like, "Who are these guys? What kind of aliens are these? Because they don't look like any Klingons I've ever seen."
0: But it's a good it's a good start. That's that's my solution. I think it lets it fills in the parts of the movie that are missing. I think it's a great lead in to what the Klingons are going to be doing for the rest of these movies. And I think it adds. I mean, a big thing about this movie is that it's not Star Wars. It's Star Trek. It's about thinking and ideas. But there, it's it, it's too far. Like you know, someone needs to throw a pie at some point, right? So let's have the yeah. Klingons out there. You know, it gives you a chance to have like and. And a visible antagonist, I think that fills that in.
1: Now, do we want to change what Viger is ultimately? Because it no, is very
0: similar to the changeling episode with Nomad. Yeah, but I'm okay with it. I'm okay with it was upgraded by a planet of machine people, and now it's a sentient machine. That's fun. I like that the the the, the reveal at they finally getting to the center of Viger and seeing the Voyager probe, you know, a shape that even like you know, even you and me who were born decades after this, still recognize immediately. That's a fun reveal. I like that. All right, all right. I like it. Mm-hmm. I like it. He, uh,
1: you know, it is again a trope that Trek went to a lot of Kirk talking
0: robots into destroying themselves or whatever. And what better way than to make the segue from the show into the movies, right? Be a yeah. little bit familiar. Like Force Awakens needed a Death Star, right? <laughs> yeah. And uh so and you're okay with
1: uh Ilea and Decker sacrificing well, Decker sacrificing himself at the end. Ilea's already gone.
0: I mean, I'm I'm compromising with you on having Ilia still there at all, <laughs> but but yeah, like I think that's a great way of getting Decker off the ship, frankly. Is he pulls <laughs> I mean, well, uh, look, we know Kirk is going to end up being the captain again, but let's have, like, Decker do the Starfleet move. Uh, like, I would have liked them to lean into it and say, no, I'm going to merge with V'ger. It's my responsibility as captain of the ship. I'm going to save the lives of my crew and, by right. extension, the entire planet Earth. I think they didn't focus on that enough. They pretty much imply that he does it so that he can, you know, he can be in love with Probylia, Bilea, which yeah. is eerie for a lot of reasons. But I think that, you make it a captain thing, and, like, Kirk finally respects him as a captain for making the sacrifice play, I think that could work really well. that makes sense. I like that. Also of note, we should move on. I just want to note, like, this, Star Trek The Motion Picture is the, I always forget, is the introduction of what we now think of as the Star Trek theme song. Like, what's most commonly associated with the opening of Star Trek The Next Generation, that music is from here. (laughs) That's yeah. impo- that's important, and it, I, I, that should be exactly <laughs> the same as it is. It, it needs more attention, I think.
1: Another thing that that I always forget about it, uh, especially when we get into the later movies and they're reusing the set of the Enterprise D as part of the Enterprise for like Star Trek Five and and Six, most notably. But a lot of the the corridors, like that that style of I don't know metallic beigey brownie walls that I recognize as next generation walls they start here and all the other thing is the idea of the vertical warp core like the warp core where it, it's you can see it and it's not just like a long hallway or whatever it was yeah. in the original series it's like they they did develop some really cool stuff in this movie that carried through for the rest of the franchise
0: mostly visual and audio yeah. Anyway, with our fixes, I think that's a lot better. I think there's something we can really work with there, and we spent like
1: <laughs> well, we spent like a third of our episode on the first movie, but I have a feeling we're not going to be spending nearly as much time on the second one.
0: Yeah, Star Trek II: The Wrath of Khan, 1982. Um, you got the cast notes, the like the the staff notes on that one. Yeah, directed by
1: Nicholas Meyer, who is becomes quite the important figure in Star Trek. Written by Jack B. Sowards, a story by Harv Bennett and uh, Jack B. Sowards, and, and uh, Harv Bennett is another guy. Uh, from this point on, Roddenberry gets less and less to do with the movies, and Harv Bennett is the big shot behind the franchise for the next four movies. Sounds right. And uh, Nicholas Meyer doesn't get a screenwriter credit, but I'm pretty sure he was, he was fairly heavily involved in the writing of this one.
0: So, uh, Khan, an antagonist from the episode Space Seed of the original series, uh, when last we saw him, he was left marooned on Seti Alpha 5. Um, Due to a miscalculation on the part of Chekhov, uh, who's now working on another ship, uh, Khan escapes and hijacks the USS Reliant and heads out to get his revenge on Captain Kirk. Uh, Captain Kirk and he have a very dramatic sort of showdown over the course of the movie, which also loops in Kirk's former love interest. Yes, first time we've heard of her, Carol Marcus, and Kirk finds out, well, he knew, but he's never really met him, Kirk's son, David. David Marcus didn't take Kirk's name. The relationship, obviously, wasn't a very good one. They're working on the Genesis Project, a project to take a dead, barren world and, with a snap of your fingers, spread life. It's like the instant terraforming thing. And Khan wants it, as because of its obvious applications, as basically a Star Trek Death Star. Because if you shoot it at a planet that does have life on it, you're still remaking it into life. Um... They ends up with a very dramatic sort of submarine movie kind of theme where Kirk on the Enterprise and Khan on the Reliant sort of float around each other in a nebula. At the end, the Enterprise is very badly damaged and Spock sacrifices his life to save it. They escape and Khan is blown up uh, and the Genesis planet is formed, which is one of the things we have to talk about on this one. (laughs) Um, But this takeaway, like the first Star Trek, the motion picture was rough. This one was not. This was a space adventure. It's real good. It's fantastic. It's it's a
1: great movie by any standards and probably saved the franchise.
0: Yeah, and at and, 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 and just I don't know how to get there, but like Ricardo Montalban as Khan <laughs> is phenomenally suit like just chewing the scenery so hard. He's great. Well, I feel like when you've
1: got Shatner as your your hero, you need someone who can meet him on his level
0: as a villain. Yeah, yeah. It's like turning it up to 11. That's like the start. That's for act one. (laughs) When you get to the climax, you just need to let that knob go wild.
1: So, uh, not a ton I would change for this one. Um I think the the main thing for me would be to have more information about Khan's people because other than Khan, his people are just extras. There's like one guy who talks back to him at one point and that's about it. You don't really see any connection between any of them or, or learn who they are because they're so drastically different from the characters we saw in Space Seed that... If you watch the episode before you watch this, you're like, who are these people? Are these people who are already on the planet that confound? What's the deal?
0: Fair. I have a few other nitpicks here and there. But yeah, I think the augments, like, it's it's only sort of touched on in Spacey, really. Like, the whole point is that these people are genetically engineered, like they're super soldiers, right? in the MCU yeah. is what we would call them. Um, but uh, but the only thing we really get out of that is that Khan is their super brilliant strategist leader, apparently. There isn't a lot of like punching people through walls or any of the augmented stuff that we're, like, we're told that they can do. None of that's really used in this movie.
1: Yeah, like Khan lifts Chekhov up with one hand when he first meets him, but that's about it. Yeah, weird oversight. The other thing that I would like is uh, uh, Savic. Kirstie Alley is introduced as Savic in this, and she's she's a great character, and, and like you can see why she became a, a star. She's like magnetic on screen. There's there's a lot going on there, and she adds some things that aren't especially Vulcan to her performance, or Vulcan as we know it. And apparently, in the script and in some of the background stuff, the idea was that she was supposed to be half. Vulcan half Romulan and I think that helps explain why she's kind of different for a Vulcan and I wish that was more explicit and that was explored a little more
0: yeah the I mean the other like the other outlook I heard on it is that like this is the first Vulcan we're spending a lot of time with who isn't Spock or Spock's family who are basically like the kings of Vulcan and it's possible that Spock is kind of like a a bit of a weeb when it comes to Vulcans (laughs) and maybe Vulcans aren't you know, as intense as he is, so like, maybe he's overdoing it, right? So, like, like Worf and the Klingons. Yeah, exactly. He's going a little bit too far to make up for the the whole you know, half human thing, whereas Savic is a little bit more of a normal thing. I, yeah, Savic is phenomenal. I wouldn't change anything. I think about her in this. Unless it was to give her a little bit more background, but it is hard to introduce a character at this point. I like If you were on board with my cutting Ilea from the last movie, I was playing with the idea of introducing her there. Yeah, I, but I then, would be okay with that up to a point, but not getting rid of her. Sure. Uh, but I also really like Savik's introduction doing the Kobayashi Maru. The yeah. uh, This is our first look at the famous Starfleet Academy no-win scenario test. And it's, it's set up, like, why is this mysterious Vulcan lady on the bridge? What's going on? Like, oh my god, I think that Zulu just died. Like what's... And then the reveal, like, okay, training over, and everyone gets up. Like, that's fun. I like that reveal.
1: Yeah, it's a great reveal, but you kind of wonder, like, why are all of these guys just working on a training simulator for Starfleet Academy? Mm-hmm. Which takes a us great...
0: back to the whole, like, the Enterprise Like, in the first one, it was that the Enterprise was broken, and this one, the Enterprise is, like, critically understaffed, because they have a training crew on board. And that, like, again, I feel like we can drop that, we don't need that, that doesn't add anything, and when you think about it, it doesn't make any sense. Like, why wouldn't the full crew just be on the ship, and also the trainees? (laughs) It's also weird and
1: it's again not something made explicit but the idea is that a long time has passed between the first movie and this one. So the big refit that we saw in the first movie is now old and like starting to break down by the time of this movie.
0: Yeah, that's I think we should, we can let that go and it's like it never really comes up again in the movie. Like the Enterprise is in bad shape for the rest of the movie because it gets its teeth kicked in during the battle with the Reliant. That's okay. But yeah. like have it just have it start as the Enterprise. We don't need this little extra crippling. So um, what do you think about the David Marcus stuff? David Marcus of- weirds me out. Uh, um the like the fact that Kirk like had a relationship with a woman and had a kid and he was never part of the kid's life is 100% believable. <laughs> Yes, I, I and I think
1: something that gets missed sometimes is that it sounds like that was Carol's decision.
0: Oh, that, I think that's pretty clear. Like, he tells her, I, I did what you wanted, I stayed away. Right. Yeah, she doesn't want David to have anything to do with Starfleet, except now when they meet again, Carol actually seems like, pretty okay with Starfleet and pretty okay with Kirk. Whereas David, like, pulls a knife on him when they first meet, and there's they have a bit of a tussle. Like, that seems really, really turned up,
1: you know? Yeah. Yeah, I can, I can, uh, again, it would be better if it was more explicit, but I can buy that, like, Carol has sort of mellowed with age, but as she, David was growing up, she was really down on Starfleet, and so that is, like, built into his core, And, and with Carol it was something that was more, something that was because of Kirk and other stuff, but... You know, twenty years, thirty years on, it's kind of mellowed, and she's not she's not as amped up about it as David is.
0: Yeah, it still seems like I can understand David resenting Kirk, but like, I will now kill you with this knife is see, <laughs> like, especially like that's even ignoring the fact that this is Star Trek. We're supposed to be in this like humans have evolved kind of thing, like well, clearly not. Yeah, well, so I don't uh, know about that. But so you don't have a problem with him being
1: a deadbeat dad?
0: No, I think that's very Kirk. Yeah, I mean he he's you know he doesn't control his groin, he's irresponsible <laughs> with it, and he's married to his job.
1: Yeah, I agree. Um, it, it does seem like a weird thing to uh, to have put on our hero character, but I don't know. I I again I I this is going to come up a lot, but I kind of wish it was explored a little bit more.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, I think maybe it could have, except for the next movie. Well, yeah. Yeah. One last thing I want to hit, and we we should really move on. And this this still bugs me, is we spend a lot of time, this is what Genesis is. This is how it works. It takes a dead planet, it, it blows it up and turns it into a living one. When, like, so the climax of the movie, Khan, like, detonates the Genesis device in a nebula. And it makes a planet and, and I, I keep watching this movie in case I, I, I in case I missed something and it's like there was no planet there what did it turn into the planet and the next movie they have to come up with a techno Babble sciency explanation for oh it didn't work like gen- Genesis doesn't work the planet's collapsing it's like you didn't think like, why not if you if, why not use that as the plot point? The fact that there yeah. was no planet that Genesis created a planet out of nothing. No, instead they just completely ignore the fact that it created an entire planet out of thin nebula air. That that's a plot inconsistency. It's a silly one, I know, but given how much like we're going to spend the next couple of movies talking about Genesis, I think it's important to wrap that up. So, in our rewrite version of this movie, I don't, can we just put a planet in the nebula? No, I think we go with what you said, like the reason
1: it doesn't work is because it was a nebula. Leave the nebula. I want the nebula there for the the fight scene, the submarine battle, but have that be the reason why the planet doesn't work. Then you have to find another reason to take the Genesis device off the table so it's not constantly used in the rest of the franchise. But I do think in this case, the nebula explanation is
0: great for why the planet falls apart. Okay. All right, let's go with that then. That's uh, So yeah, slight tweaks to Wrath of Khan. Uh, a couple other little niggling things here and there, but I don't think anything that hurts it. That's a great movie, and I think we've just added a little bit of, of frosting to that cake. Let's move on. Uh, Star Trek Three: The Search for Spock, 1984. Directed by Leonard Nimoy
1: and uh, written by Harve Bennett himself, coming out of the producer's chair to take all the,
0: the story credit he can get. So Spock is dead, uh, Starfleet has created what could be interpreted as a weapon that remakes entire planets, uh, and the Enterprise is going to be decommissioned. Um, that's uh, already bad news before we find out that all the Vulcans are really mad at Kirk because they left Spock's body on the Genesis planet with his little funeral, and it turns out when Vulcans are die, you're supposed to bring them back to Vulcan to go to Mount Saleia, To, like, inter their souls? It's not clear. Um, However, this is especially complicated because scientists, uh, who apparently consist entirely of David Marcus and Savick, uh, are on the Genesis planet and have found out that as part of the whole creating life thing, it's brought Spock's body back to life. But his soul is possessing Dr. McCoy, which, okay, fine. So now they have to get to Genesis, but they're not allowed it's too politically sensitive, and their ship is you know a garbage heap anyway. So they hijack the enterprise, they sabotage the newer federation ship, the Excelsior, so they don't get caught. They get to Genesis Planet just in time to find more Klingons who are really upset about this Genesis thing, Klingon Christopher Lloyd, which is wonderful. Um, he doesn't make the best Klingon, but he makes a great Christopher Lloyd. I- <laughs>
1: I think that's all you can really ask in the world. You yeah. know, I don't think I'd be a great Klingon, but I'd like to be the best Graham Bex that I can be.
0: There you go. I just I'm spelling it in my head as Christopher Lloyd with a K, right? right. K apostrophe Christopher. <laughs> anyway, um, tussle with the Klingons. They kill David. Uh, you know they like, kill. Oh, you bastards! You killed my son. Um, Kirk tricks the Klingons into boarding the Enterprise and then blows it up while they're on the planet, destroying the starship Enterprise. Very dramatic. Uh, they seize control of the the Klingon ship. The, the the first first instance of the Klingon bird of prey. Um, go back to Vulcan. Reunite Spock's soul with his body, and his memories slowly come back. And Spock's back! Hooray!
1: Yeah. I mean, the whole movie is designed just to find a way to bring Spock back in the end, and, and they get there, but it's
0: uh, it's a bumpy ride. It is, and I think, you know, adding blowing up the Enterprise is a fun, like, it, it gives you something you didn't expect, but it's also, like, that happens really fast. That's that's like ten minutes from where the Klingons board the ship and to seeing them set the auto-destruct, and then it blows up, and then there's the whole rest of the movie where not much happens, Um, I'll tell you right now, the first thing we're doing is we're putting Kirstie Alley back as Savick. No offense to the new actor, but huge difference. Right, right. No offense to her, but, uh, you know, it's hard to compete. And,
1: I mean, I guess to give you a sense of their divergent careers, like, Kirstie Alley never returns to Star Trek, and Robin Curtis pops up a couple of times on, like, Deep Space Nine and Voyager as new characters. Um, Anyway, uh that is true. I I, I do. Uh, the, I want more from the Klingons. Like, courage is just such a uh, mustache twirling villain. He's he's not. He's like big and he's great. As he's a great Christopher Lloyd, as he said. But he's uh, he. I just don't fully get his motivation all through it, or like care what he's after. He's just a bad guy for the sake of being a bad guy. Uh the my big change on this is. David's death is meaningless to me like he he it, it's it's such a quick offhanded thing it's like you, yeah. you never get to care about him at all and, and neither does don't...
0: Kirk for that matter it's hard to I mean of course he cares but like it's it's hard to buy the like Kirk is now emotionally destroyed because they killed his son he barely knows his son
1: yeah it's like he met him last movie dropped him off at Genesis. And now he's dead. it's like it's not not a huge like there's not no bond
0: there, yeah, and again, first time he meets him, he, David tried to stab him with a knife, tried right. to murder him with a knife. It's like it's not like I get it's sad, but the like Kirk collapsing on the bridge, oh my son, it's kind of like, well eh. <laughs> it's like he's he's upset about the idea of it
1: rather than the actual loss of the person.
0: Yeah. Now, I do think it has to be there, but I think we need to build into the start of this movie that, like, you know, I, I, on the way back from Genesis to Space Doc, he's got David with him or, or something so that they can build a relationship so that we can get to know David a little.
1: Yeah, have have Savick be on the planet with someone else, I, maybe like Carol, uh, or maybe have it be Uhura, who barely factors into the movie. And like, this movie does give the rest of our regular crew more to do than some of the previous ones, but Uhura. They're not Uhura. Yeah, she gets left behind and just shows up on Vulcan at the end. She uh,
0: does have a cool scene, like, during the whole hijacking thing where she sort of, like, tricks the snotty ensign and, and then yeah. he has him, like, you know, a phaser point into the closet. Like, she's there, <laughs> and then she's like, okay, I'll see you in Act 5. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah. But uh, you know, give that job to someone else. i Have like Chekhov, seduce the ensign or something. But um, <laughs> uh, leave, I, I don't know. You don't. I don't necessarily think you want to. It would be weird if it's Savick and Uhura, essentially mothering Spock, this baby Spock. But as it stands, it's just Savick doing it, and David's kind of like standing there watching. And then there's the whole awkward
0: far scene with oh, young yeah, Spock see, and... Where child Spock without, like, without a mind, because his soul is somewhere else, but his his aging body is going through puberty, and Savik has to take him off camera. <laughs> Just to save his life. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and to be fair, they've established in the original series that Vulcan puberty is no joke, right? Like, we know it's, a. Uh, it's pretty dramatic, but still, that's that's a really weird scene. I think we could have just creatively skipped that. Yet, no one would have missed it if you didn't mention the Ponfar, So we yeah. didn't have to bring it up. It, it could have been something that fans
1: debated for ages. Like, so so did Savic have to do blah 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 in order to for Spock instead of making it like explicit? Yes, she did. Yeah. <laughs> Creepy. <laughs> But yeah, then then you have David be part of the action for the rest of the movie, and, and you build up that bond between father and son. So when he,
0: Courage, does kill him, or Krooge, how do you pronounce it again? I don't know Dude. if it's ever pronounced in the, in the movie. I think I've only ever seen it written.
1: Oh, again, like
0: I'm so obsessed with Christopher Lloyd that I can't, you know, maybe there's just not room for it. But.
1: Well, then when... Christopher Lloyd kills uh, David. Then the audience cares too because you've spent, seen this movie with this like father son bonding stuff going on and, and exactly,
0: and,
1: yeah. That that th- there we go. That I think would do a lot to fix this movie. Maybe one other little tweak I might put in there is have more of McCoy sort of losing it with Spock's soul in him.
0: Yeah, McCoy, possessed by Spock, it's weird how little they do with that. Like, they have it occasionally where he's doing Spock's job, sort of, and sometimes his voice sounds like Spock, and it's spooky. Let's lean into that. Like, that's kind of neat. Yeah. And then he visits a weird, like, space Chuck E. Cheese and tries to hire a ship to get him back to Genesis, and it's a really awkward—like, it doesn't go anywhere because he gets caught by security— but we spend a lot of time with that happening and nothing comes of it. Like, like let's let that go and instead have, like, how does the crew interact with McCoy when he's also Spock, right? Like, add more characterization, like what we did to the first movie. That seems and, really cool.
1: Yeah, and it would give uh, DeForest Kelly a bit of an acting stretch, you know, have him having to, like,
0: imitate Leonard Nimoy for half a movie. That could be fun. That could be a lot of fun. Okay, I think we got it. We've got uh, we've got David on the ship, uh, sort of as a, not as a crew member, but regularly interacting with Kirk and building their relationship. Um, we're making it a little bit more clear what Christopher Lloyd is after. Like we know he's after Genesis, but let's give him some you know for like for, for the Klingon Empire kind of stuff. Um, we've got Savick with a slightly larger role, and I mean, look, i not I don't mean it bad in a bad way, but I'm a much better actor. <laughs> um david dies at the end it's very dramatic um the enterprise is destroyed they escape on the bird of prey and get spock back sounds pretty good yeah yeah i'm with you there
1: uh yeah and maybe have uh sarek be involved more because mark leonard is is always great as Sarek. yeah yeah
0: this is the one that opens with him shutting down the klingon ambassador right I think like, so. Yeah, like this is they like the the Klingons are really standing in for the Cold War Russians at this point. And the Klingon ambassador is out there yelling and screaming and raving about, you know, the Genesis torpedo weapon and you know the and then the criminal Kirk and yeah and Sarek comes in and is just like, "You Klingons are stupid and illogical and everything you are saying is a carefully phrased lie." But in a cool like, you know, smarmy Sarek diplomatic way. Vulcan way. Yeah, he's yeah. he's really good. And I buy his desperation, like looking for the soul too. He's furious with Kirk, like in a Vulcan in, way.
1: In a Vulcan way. But that's the the great but, thing with with some of these. The best Vulcans aren't completely emotionless, but it, you can tell they're holding it back. And yeah, and I it's feel the struggle. Like on, on Enterprise and some other shows, the the Vulcans can't quite nail that. They're not like good enough actors to nail that, but like. Spock, Sarek, uh, Tuvok, T'Pol—they they get it and they do a really good job with it. Yeah. And even what's his name, Vork? Who's the other Vulcan on Voyager?
0: Oh yeah, Vork. sounds right. The the engineer, right? Yeah. Yeah. That that's yeah. <coughs> anyway, <laughs> that all right. Search for Spock. I think we've got it. Uh, I think Star this tre- one is also going to be a quick one. Yeah, Star Trek IV: The Voyage Home, nineteen eighty-six.
1: Yeah, it's uh, directed by Leonard Nimoy again. Uh, quite the team on the script. Steve Mearson, Peter Krikes, and Nicholas Mayer, and Harv Bennett. And the story was by Harv Bennett and Leonard Nimoy. So Nicholas Meyer, the director of Star Trek II, comes back to do a screenwriting pass on this one. And uh, again, it's, it's one of the best. He, he seems to be a key ingredient in the best of these Star
0: Trek movies and, and should have been involved a lot more. So he, uh, so Spock is back on Vulcan, he's getting his stuff back together, um, everyone agrees that it's time to go back to Earth and face the music for the whole breaking treaties, you know, crossing illegally into Genesis, hijacking and stealing the Enterprise, sabotaging the Excelsior, all that jazz. Uh, but the, by the time they get close to Earth, they find a mysterious alien probe. Yeah, okay, we're doing this again. Um, has shown up, and anything that even gets close to it loses all electricity, and it's literally vaporizing the oceans on Earth and making this really annoying sound. Um, Spock, because he's Spock, is able to determine that, uh, like, oh, sound and water. Here's a connection. If you hear the sound in the water, it's whale song. This probe is looking for humpback whales. Well, we don't have any because it's the future, and we hunted them all to extinction. So Kirk and crew have to go back in time and find a couple of humpback whales to bring back to the future. They land in 1986 (laughs) and, you know, hilarious fish out of water, or should we say mammal out of water, wink, hijinks ensue. Um Kirk, of course, you know finds a semi sort of romantic interest in the in Gillian Taylor, a doctor at the cetacean Institute um uh, there's all kinds of like they need to fix their the warp core so they, like there's a whole thing if you haven't seen this movie, you should just go watch it it's It's a sci-fi comedy with an environmental message it's a lot of fun. It has some of my favorite jokes in all of Star Trek um yeah, not too much to tweak on this one. I'm gonna go right to the end. I
1: think the the main problem I've had with this movie is that Jillian comes back to the future with them. I I don't understand the point of it. She she comes back and then immediately goes on another ship and you never see her again. And
0: and I don't get it. Like why 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 not just leave her? I mean I do like it just for the scene where she basically blows Kirk off at the end. He he gives her the line. It's like, well, as they say in your century, I don't even have your phone number. And she's like, yeah, you don't. (laughs) Okay, bye. Uh, Yeah, I grant you. I mean, it bugs the hell out of me. Like, okay, I so like she tells him in the past, like, yeah, I'm coming to the future with you who in the 23rd century knows how to take care of whales. So it's like, okay, I, I mean, hmm, they probably have books, but I get it. Firsthand experience is interesting, but then they assign her to a science vessel? Like, wouldn't they want to keep her on Earth with the whales? <laughs> yeah, very good point. <laughs> so, like, I, I can I can sort of buy that. Like, I think there's also supposed to be, like, there's that will they or won't they vibe between her and Kirk the whole way, and that, that sort of influences why she goes too. Yep. I, I do think— But then think they dump
1: I, it as soon as she flies away at the end. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I do it's think- well, will I they, just, won't they? It ends very definitively, won't they? <laughs> they won't. And now she's left everything behind. I think a couple of lines of dialogue, maybe when they're on their pizza date, just about like the fact that she doesn't have anybody, like maybe her parents are gone and she has no siblings. Or something. Like, something to explain why it's so easy for her to pack up and go 200 years into the future would have really helped to smooth that bump.
1: I feel like Spock will be like, "Oh, we're gonna get a visit from Temporal Investigations when we get back to the the future if but, if we bring her along."
0: But I don't think they have
1: Temporal Investigations. I yet. know I've been Let- a jerk, but but my point is, he should be like, "This is going to be a problem. Like, we're taking someone out of the time stream here. Even if she has no one or with her, we don't know what the ramifications are." Remember what happened with the Edith Keeler, Captain? Remember that? You want another Edith <laughs> Keeler,
0: Captain? Yeah, but ramific—that's the thing, like. Next Generation and on, I'm with you absolutely, but time travel, like, that episode, ah, oh God, like, it starts off for, like, so, we're in the 1970s. Yeah. <laughs> like, like time travel in the Kirk era is apparently, like, fairly common, <laughs> like, which doesn't make any sense, but we get the impression that it's like, yeah, it can, it can be done pretty easily, and they do it a lot. Yeah, they're it's they're not very consistent about it in the original series, that's true. Yeah. So like I mean and also again this is played super lighthearted, right? Like when like they need to get the the plexiglass to build the whale tank and so Scotty gives the guy the formula for transparent aluminum. And At least Bones they have the t- conversation though. Well, but Bones takes him aside and he says, "You know, like we're changing the future." And Scotty's solution is, "Why? How do you know he didn't invent it?" And they go, "Huh." <laughs> and that's <laughs> the being, end I feel like
1: someone should have brought that up about Jillian though although maybe it would be covering the same ground as that conversation well with, I think uh, that
0: conversation covers the ground where it's like you know what this isn't like this isn't Isaac yeah. Asimov like <laughs> this is this is mostly played for the lulz. <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's fair Uh, anything else I can't think of a single other thing I would change about this movie I love the dialogue I love the characters I love the acting the effects are what they need to be they're a little dated um, but I'm perfectly okay with it Uh, the uh, even the moral like you know it's an environmentalist thing save the whales that still applies that's still a lesson people need to learn Um, but I also feel like it's it's
1: earned right like it's it's so built into the story in such a good sort of subtle way where i i've watched it a million times and maybe it's because i've been watching it since i was a kid but i never feel kid over the head with it
0: no never no one ever looks into the camera and says boy we you know we need to learn our lesson or there's disaster for the no it's just this sci-fi problem that they're solving with time travel they it's yeah. yeah it's pretty comfortable it's it's another thing that I like about it and, and what sets
1: it apart from the other movies in the, the whole rest of the franchise. There isn't a villain, per se. It's just a problem that needs to be solved. And I think Star Trek, especially in the movies, needs more of that. You know, you don't need to have a sinister villain every time you go
0: out. Yeah, heads up to the people writing Discovery... <laughs> who keep having to do, like, oh, what's happening in this season? Oh, it's the end of the world. It's like, well, okay, it doesn't have to be, <sighs> yeah. Anyway, we don't need a different podcast. <laughs> uh, yeah, Star Trek 4 We're spending a lot of time on it just gushing about it, but it's real good. Let's tweak the stuff with, with Jillian just a little bit. Otherwise, yeah, ship it, print it. It's great. Alright, so that takes us to Star
1: Trek V, The Final Frontier, June 9th, 1989, directed by Mr. William Shatner. Screenwriter is David Loffrey, and the story is Shatner, Harv Bennett, and David Who?
0: Okay, what is the story in this one? Um, so, <laughs> where do you even start? Uh, so, there is a strange laughing Vulcan. Uh, who takes a bunch of ambassadors hostage on this weird Mad Max planet. Um the new Enterprise, the 1701A, is dispatched to handle the situation because they need Jim Kirk. But gosh darn it, don't you know it? The ship is brand new and it barely works. We're doing this trope again. Yep. I I got I do like like this is the one time ever that we get Sco- like a log entry from Scotty. And it's engineers log, da da da, 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 da. I think the ship was built by monkeys. (laughs) It's a funny line, but this is frustrating. Um, They get there, and it turns out it's all a big setup for this guy, Cybok, to steal the Enterprise. And uh, what's happening here is Cybok is Spock's never-before-mentioned magical half-brother, who has very loosely defined mind-control powers— who has enticed these people to come with him to find God, who he believes is hidden behind something called the Great Barrier at the center of the galaxy. Um, He mind controls the entire ship except for Kirk and Spock and maybe McCoy. It is unclear. Um, They fly through the Great Barrier. And and Scotty, I think. Scotty manages to... Oh, Scotty's not there. You're right. Yeah. Um, they fly through the Great Barrier because it turns out the only thing you needed to get through the Great Barrier was, it's not clear. Um, I, I think it was like special shield they, or whatever. I specifically went to rewatch it. They do not mention it. Kirk tells him <laughs> to his face, no, nothing has ever come back from going through the barrier. And Cyborg's answer is, ah, but what if we do? <laughs> All right, well, that's the first change we'll put it in. That's the first Oh, uh, uh, well, yeah, the well, hang yeah, on. Let's, let's we're just... going to discuss, <laughs> yeah, they get there, they beam down, they meet this mysterious, transparent, floating head who wants to the ship, uh Shatner has a very dramatic like, what does God need with a starship, and then it shoots lightning out of its eyes at him, and they decide that this isn't God because he's mean. Um, and he fights Kirk for a while uh, and then they blow it up and rescue Kirk him. and everything is fine. And, and also... it th- merges with him or fights him in his head or something. Or something. We never see Cybok again. It's fine. Um, and also there are Klingons. There's another Klingon bird of prey in this movie that never accomplishes anything until literally, I am not exaggerating, the last 10 minutes of the movie when they confront the Enterprise and off camera, um, the Klingon ambassador and Spock take it over and use it to shoot and kill the not-god and rescue Shatner. This one is a little rough.
1: <laughs> but I think I think one of the things that occurred to me while doing this is I think if you want to make the first movie much better, you have to make a lot of changes to it. I think there are ways of changing this movie with just tweaks that would make it a lot better. Okay, well, hit me. (laughs) (laughs) Well, for one thing, apparently, Cybok was supposed to be played by Sean Connery. That was who they were courting for
0: that role. And, man, can you imagine how awesome that would have been? I mean, I like Sean Connery, but the character of Cybok has a lot of issues. All right, like, let's, I mean, let's start with the fact that this is a sibling that has never appeared before, that who's been there all along, just off camera, and it's not the first time that Star Trek will do this with Spock's ever increasingly sized family <laughs> uh but that's already weird second uh, tell me about his mind control power yes. explain I do you know what I'll save it to you because we've, like, we' like we're we're crunched for time it's never explained and it works when it needs to work and it stops working when the plot needs it to stop working it there's They don't explain, like, like, what we see, like, we see him do this, where he has, like, it looks like it's some kind of hypnosis. He says, share with me your pain. And he, in 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 the opening, and the guy is like, oh, I feel so much better now, I'll follow you anywhere. And we see when he does it to McCoy, it's like, tell me the story about how your father died, and you couldn't save him, even though you were a doctor. And for a while, like, after that, McCoy is like, yeah, yeah, no, I'll work with you. And you're sitting there in the audience going, what? Why? What does that have to do with anything? I kind of, I I, I do like the scene where you see
1: what Cyborg is, is, well, you see what McCoy is seeing, and then he, he does it again with Spock. And um, I think those scenes are really well acted, and and they're well written, but I agree the outcome of them is a little vague, especially when how does that
0: equal mind control? Like that's an important part of this story. That's how Cybok works. I think it's like he's by sharing it with him, he's taking
1: that secret pain away from them and they're forever grateful or something. I think it falls apart when, when it doesn't work on McCoy. I I get why it doesn't work on Spock. It doesn't work on Spock because Cybok chooses something that Spock has already come to terms with. Like he's like, you're upset because you're, half-human, half-Vulcan, and Spock's like, nah, I'm over that. And so it doesn't work on him. And I think but that is an would... interesting
0: twist on but it, again, a way for him like, to break The it. verb you're using, work. Like, look, I'll tell you, I've got, like, yeah, listen, I mean, that's, this isn't the podcast for it. Yeah, I've got a dead father, too. And I've talked to people about it. And, yeah, sometimes it feels better to talk about it. But I wouldn't then turn on my friends and hijack my own starship and fly it into the middle of the galaxy to go find God. Again, Th- there probably, is a huge leap
1: there. Probably not the, the podcast for it, but I think the idea is that it soothes whatever pain is there. It's like, it's not a feeling better for a while. It's like, he's taken that away from you. The trauma is gone, I think is the idea. But... Again, it's not made explicit, it's not, it's all very vague, and that is a big problem.
0: Yeah, it's, it's, yeah, I, I feel like you're giving it more credit than it deserves, even. Probably. Um, I think, so let's start, we need to establish, okay, Cyborg has a crazy mind meld thing, and he can, and, like, he can, using some Star Trek techno babble, he can take control of your brain. And he implants you with thoughts, or, like, and, like, you know, changes your will. Like that needs to be in there. I don't like it, but that that we need that. The, like that is the that is the bun that's going to hold this whole hamburger together. I, I also I do like the idea of the laughing hippie
1: Vulcan being the sort of villain of it. I mean, maybe maybe what you need to do is drop all the god stuff altogether and focus more on Cyborg amassing power. Maybe he's becoming a threat to Vulcan, and and they need the Enterprise and Kirk and Spock to to
0: stop him. Cause... Yeah, like, but dropping God makes it, like, and, like, that's what this movie is all about, supposedly. It's, I mean, it's its supposed to be about, you know, the the metaphor, the search, uh, you know, inside ourselves. What it's really about is it gives William Shatner a chance to fist fight with God. Yes. It's incredibly clear that, like, this is an ego project for William Shatner, and I, like, if you take the God out, like, that's the core of this movie, so then... What do you like? What's the movie about? Well, then it's it's
1: more a movie. Uh, it would end up if you're going to focus on Cyborg as the v- primary villain, which is what he seems to be for most of it. Until you get to the very end, and then he kind of joins them and realizes that this isn't the god he was looking for. But if you if you leave him as the antagonist and the whole thing is a threat to Vulcan, it becomes more of a Spock movie. Which again, William Shatner directing probably wouldn't have wanted that, but I think that makes it a more interesting movie and makes it stand out from the rest
0: of the, the six series, six film series. And All right, it, I'm on board with you, but I still need, like, what's Cyborg's end goal?
1: Uh, reintroducing emotions to Vulcan and, and showing them that uh, his way is the, the, the best way. He's like some sort of crazy Vulcan who, who doesn't want to be emotionless and likes yeah.
0: being a laughing Vulcan okay that's that's I mean, you know what that's not bad. Did you just come up with that on the spot? <laughs> I did <laughs> that's that's pretty good, actually. yeah, he's a threat to Vulcan. He's a threat to everything they stand for because he's gonna he's gonna forcefully reintroduce emotions to them and and we know from their past that like they're they were crazy with their emotions that it's like a defense mechanism to shut them down, and so it's he's gonna upend Vulcan society, okay, I'm on board with that all right. I
1: think it would have been a really hard sell in the the '80s when this was made because I, I think there's a feeling like, oh, if Earth isn't in danger. If it's not our our crew that are at, at risk here, it's it's going to be something that we have the audience isn't going to connect with. But I think a modern audience can deal with the fact that this is a Spock movie. Spock is the most popular character, and it's like a problem for him to deal with, and Kirk is going to be there to support his friend through this really trying thing, where his his crazy stepbrother, half-brother, is, is a threat to the whole planet, and the shame that brings to his family, you gotta do so much with that.
0: Okay, yeah. Okay, so the Beats are, like, we can start with the hostage thing, he, he lures the new Enterprise, he takes control of it, but now he's heading to Vulcan. He's been exiled from Vulcan, we know that, that's already established. Um... And I guess he's going to, like, is this like a like a Hydra thing? Is he going to mind control, like, prominent Vulcans and spread it, you know, yeah. like, like, secret society style? But I, I really like the idea that he isn't doing it. He's not,
1: like, nefarious. He's he's doing it because he actually wants, he, he thinks he's actually helping these people when he mind controls them. He's not just, like, taking over their minds and making them wrap to his will. Right? He's yeah. like, I'm freeing them. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So you do that, uh, and then uh, Spock is like watching this happen. I, I even, I think we may even have to change more and have it be like something that's happening on the planet, and they, the Federation sends Spock and the Enterprise to go investigate it. Like, like get rid of all the Mad Max stuff. All of that stuff is garbage
0: anyway. Yeah, God. I mean, the, do we need to talk about Uhura's erotic fan dance? I but. would rather not. Yeah, let's... Let, listen, that's gone. That's 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 all you need to know, audience. <laughs> yeah, I think we need to find
1: all things for the rest of the, the cast to do other than just the comic hijinks that they
0: get thrown into in this that are, are mostly painful to watch. Yeah, okay. Well, yeah, the connection to Spock gets us why they would send the Enterprise even though it doesn't work yet. Um, I would like to drop that too and say the Enterprise is fine. Um... Just because I hate how often we're crippling the Enterprise in this movie, but yeah, yeah, okay. So forget that. So yeah, the Enterprise is out doing Enterprise stuff. It's Star Trek again. Everything's great, but there's trouble on Vulcan or a Vulcan colony or something. He's exiled from Vulcan. Right, getting to Vulcan should probably be a really dramatic moment. So okay, he's not on yeah. Vulcan yet, but he's causing trouble. There's this weird laughing Vulcan and Spock, you know, quirk eyebrow, and then it takes until the third act. And like, well, actually, he's my brother. And just okay fine i'll accept that yeah uh, so he, you can sort of understand
1: why people wouldn't why he wouldn't have mentioned him before if he's this like exiled
0: half brother that is the shame of the family yeah okay all right um so they go to confront him um stuff happens and he ends up mind controlling his way to taking over the enterprise that lets him get back to vulcan finally because it's the enterprise you know no one's going to question why the enterprise is going to vulcan uh, now we just need like what's the like what's the climax like what happens to Cybok to show him that he's wrong and Spock is right. Or, mm. That's yeah. a, that,
1: uh, I, f- I feel like we'd need a, more time and a, a room with a whiteboard to plot some of that stuff out. But I think we're on the right track. I I, I do want a scene with Cybok and Sarek and have ha- that that could be like a powerful emotional scene with with uh, trying to. Use his powers on Sarek and and have this moment of rejection between them and and why? Ooh ooh
0: ooh ooh ooh. <laughs> we um we know from Next Generation. Oh, how did it work? We know like by Next Generation, Sarek is sick, right? And his emotions are leaking out. Yeah. Is is that something that we can take advantage of? Do we remember? Was that a chronic condition? Like, is that something he has now, and is just able to control mm. it better? I don't. Well, it could be, oh, a,
1: a well, hundred years is a long time to have a chronic condition. I think it's, what, you know, look, we're, Vulcan stuff gets invented every single time yeah, there's a Vulcan okay, but, episode.
0: Right, so let's, so what we can, we can do is we have that, you know, his, his like, he's taking over prominent Vulcans and chaos is spreading through the planet and he finally gets to Sarek, his father, the most, like, the Vulcan of all Vulcans, and he does this free your mind thing and Sarek, like, goes nuts and we find out, oh, actually, Sarek of all Vulcans has, like, his emotions are crazy. He has this condition it's too much. And Cybok sees that uh, what he's done is, like, destroying his own father. Mm. There's okay. a cool thing. And now oh, it's yeah. now it's Cybok and Spock and, like, a rapidly unraveling Sarek. And Spock being like, look, I'm I'm half human too. I get it. Like, emotions are cool and fun and, you know, free love. It's great. But, like... <laughs> You know, there are consequences to what you're doing. There's a reason why we have this logical thing. And like, look, our planet now is tearing itself apart. Look what you've done. I like it. I like it. So that's cool. That's cool. That's cool. Okay, and then does does Cybok make a sacrifice play somewhere? I feel like that's how it has to end, because we have to take Cybok off the board. I think we have to take him off the board, but I I don't think
1: he should be redeemed. I think you need a, a fight scene with Kirk.
0: Uh, to really you know to, to make sure kirk gets his hero moment mm, yeah yeah okay you're right yeah we haven't really done anything with the rest of the crew okay so it's it's the three super vulcans having this intense debate thing and meanwhile kirk is like retaken the enterprise he's got the senior staff back they're gonna you know they're they're beaming down because the rioters have a you know a thing it doesn't matter it's a star <laughs> trek thing and they're they stop them from doing the thing I don't know if it's a bomb or a laser or a mind control ray, like yeah whatever. maybe maybe pull something from star Trek four where where everyone
1: splits into teams and goes on these fetch quests, and you have like some some good Kirk and McCoy stuff as they go to to do something, and you know Sulu and Chekhov go off to do something else everyone's got their little job, oh also. Uh, We have to drop the Scotty Uhura romance that is only in this movie and is never discussed before or after.
0: And is super awkward. Yeah, we're not doing any of that. That's not there. Um, Got McCoy is like loving and hating this at the same time, right? Like this is like everything that he wanted to happen to Spock, kind of in a childish way. But now he's seeing like the chaos it's caused, and he's sort of under like on the one hand, he's like, "Hey, Vulcans, finally having a good time." But like, look, they're they're rioting, like it's it's like the capital out there. Yeah, yeah, I think
1: it, that would be cool to have him sort of agree with Cybok at first. Like, yeah, let's let's loosen up these stodgy old Vulcans, and then, you know, he sees the
0: consequences of that and changes his ways. Right, and so they finally, they get up there, Cybok is understanding, but he, like, he's, Cybok has seen that what he's doing is killing his father, and it's a metaphor, like, it's killing Vulcan society, but then Kirk is gonna, you know, come in through the window or whatever, and they're gonna have a tussle. I still feel like it, like Cyborg, I don't know if it's redeemed, but like, you know, Kirk just punches him until he's unconscious and Spock gives everyone their logic back. That's no good. We need... No, too, too neat. Yeah. Um... No, I think Cyborg has to do something, like to save his, you know, like to, like to save his father, he's able to like... You know, control A select all and turn off what he's done to people's minds somehow, using <laughs> the the Vulcan artifact that lets him mind meld with the entire planet at once. Okay, right. but how about instead
1: of that? I want I I I don't want Cybok doing that. I want uh Kirk to kill Cybok or or defeat him and then have uh, a tender mind meld between Spock and Sarek, fixing Sarek, and then Sarek uses the device. And to fix finally it
0: repairing the father son relationship there. Yeah. You're not repairing, but like getting, yeah, like now we're laying the, the, the road to getting back together again. Yeah, that's good. That's good. There we okay. go. And then together, Spock and Sarek can undo what Cybok has done and things go back to normal. Okay. Yeah. Magic Vulcan Star- volcano crystals. Yeah, exactly. Star Trek V, uh, The Final Frontier probably needs a new name. We basically rewrote the entire thing. But that <laughs> sounds good. We'll call it a Good Vulcan Time. There you go. Okay, uh, let's let's work on that. But we'll we'll workshop that name and come back yeah. to it. Okay, last one on our list. Also, one I don't think we have to spend too much time with uh, Star Trek Six: The Undiscovered Country.
1: December 6th, 1991, directed by the returning Nicholas Meyer, written by D- Nicholas Meyer and Denny Martin Flynn, with a story by Leonard Nimoy, Lawrence Koner, and Mark Rosenthal.
0: So, there, there, is an, uh, there is a mining accident on the Klingon moon of Praxis, which uh, removes most of their source of dilithium and also poisons the atmosphere of their homeworld Kronos, um the, the Klingon Empire is now on a countdown to self destruction, and it has forced them into a position to make a formal peace agreement with the Federation, so the Federation can sort of bail them out. Um everybody who is not Spock and the Federation Council is horrified by this because the Klingons are the bad guys. Um Kirk has never trusted Klingons, he never will, he can never forgive them for the death of his boy. <laughs> They uh, they fly out to meet the the, the head the chancellor the oh you know, the Klingon king if you were on his ship Kronos One and escort it back to Earth. Um, he meets the, the the chancellor, his daughter, his, his general Chang, the very clearly going to be the antagonist of the movie. Um, everything is awkward and terrible, but diplomatic. And then in the middle of the night. Uh, While they're all hungover from drinking Romulan ale at this diplomatic dinner, the Enterprise fires on Kronos One, and it's boarded by Starfleet officers who kill the Chancellor. Um, Kirk, of course, has no idea what the hell is going on because I mean, he doesn't like Klingons, but he wouldn't fucking blow them up. Um, goes over and tries to help and ends up getting arrested and it looks like the peace talks are in jeopardy. Uh, Kirk and McCoy get sent off to, to Hoth, basically, Klingon prison planet, ice planet. Um, But managed to enact their escape. In the meantime, Spock has determined Enterprise didn't shoot. It was a Klingon bird of prey that has a cool new power. It can fire while cloaked. That's crazy. That's never happened before. Uh, they managed to, to pick up Kirk and McCoy, and they're on their way to save. They're, they're going to try peace talks again, and they know there's going to be more sabotage. Um, they're able to expose Spock's new protégé, Lieutenant Valeris, has been in on it. She's part of a conspiracy of Starfleet officers and Klingon officers who are trying to sabotage this peace process. Um, very fun fight with you know, invisible bird of prey while Chang yells in Shakespeare a lot. Um, they blow him up. Uh, beam down to the planet, save the president of Earth. Kirk gives a passionate speech. Everyone applauds without really questioning sort of why he's there and not in jail. And the peace talks are saved and Kirk and the senior crew of the Enterprise retire uh, to make room for the next generation. That was very, very well done. Uh, And it's a great movie.
1: And I think the main change that we're going to make on this, I I don't even need to ask you about it. It's
0: got to be Savick instead of Valeris. That's the biggest thing. This is the payoff for the Savick character across all these movies. Like We didn't talk about it. We have to work her into five as well. Um, but yeah, Savik as like Savic is very clearly intended in Wrath of Khan to be like the new Spock. Now that Spock is old and retiring, and having Savik build up as his protégé all the way up to this movie, only to betray him, is awesome. And even cooler, it's because she the reason she w- doesn't want the peace with the Klingons is because even though she's a Vulcan deep down, she still blames them for killing David. That's there you go. yeah awesome. That's... Like, that character moment on the bridge, instead of having them interrogating Snooty Valerius, having it, Savik, why? What do you—and and her finally answering, well, how could you do this? Like, why, why? Why peace with the Klingons? They killed David. They killed your son, Jim. Like, just, oh, God, the pathos. It's so—it's yeah. delicious.
1: And then having her be half— uh Romulan would also be an interesting payoff there in that it it helps explain why she might have that that feeling of vengeance in her, which is sort of foreign to the Vulcans that we've encountered up until our rewrite of Star Trek V. <clears throat> yeah, but that's great to have. <laughs> uh yeah, in the actual movie, I, I watched it again fairly recently, and that scene where Spock interrogates her on the bridge is is Fairly disturbing, where he interrogates Valeris, and it feels like it, I feel like if you were doing that with Savick, you might buy it more because you've seen the development
0: of that relationship across several movies. Yeah. The, Whereas the, the, with the anger the, and the betrayal on Spock's part, yeah, like that that explains away the the forced mind meld. Like that's 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 the most upset we see Spock until the the JJ movies.
1: Yeah, and in this, it's. It just feels weird. It's like he, she, he talks about her as his like protege, but it it feels it feels weird because there was Savick, and you can't watch the movie without thinking about her. And Valeris just she's she's a great character. I I, I like the performance and I like what she brings to the movie. But it would have been so much better if it was
0: Kirstie Alley. Yeah, that's just I mean Valeris is was well cast and well written and well acted, but it was clearly a substitute. Yes. So that's that's definitely a big change. Um, another thing we have to look at is we need to settle on a cut for this movie. I did not realize, like, I was this year's old when I realized there was more than one cut of Undiscovered Country. Um, the release, if you have it on disc, which I think was also what was released in the theater, is different from what you'll see in streaming and home video, where parts of the Starfleet side of the conspiracy are cut. There's there's an extra bit like where we see how Starfleet is responding to Kirk's you know being imprisoned, and like they're coming up with a plan to break him out and stuff, and at the end we see like the, the Klingon sniper who's trying to kill the president of Earth is actually a Starfleet guy in disguise, like you're trying to do like a false flag thing. That all gets cut from the most recent releases of this movie, and my vote is for restoring it. Uh, and th- that was in the theatrical
1: release, too. The fact that you it was just a Klingon who was a sniper is, is I believe, in the theatrical cut and not in the director's cut. And it's... When I watched it, I recently, I watched the theatrical cut on the digital iTunes thing I have, and that was the first moment where I realized the cut I was watching wasn't the one I was used to, because I'm used to them pulling his rubber mask off at the end like Mission Impossible and it being, a I I think it's Rene it's Colonel West, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Oh, it's yeah, Odom. yeah. The actor. Yeah. The, the, yeah. You're talking about real life. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's Colonel West, played by <laughs> Rene Aubergenois, who is not in the movie at all in the, the theatrical cut. It's very weird. And I, I was like, he dies, and I'm expecting them to pull the mask off, and he doesn't. And he's just some random Klingon, as far as the theatrical cut is
0: concerned. And it was, uh, it was pretty weird. Yeah, so I think we both agree, let's restore that lost footage, let's put that back in. Yes. So that helps. Um, some other little things uh, to look at. I mean, actually, putting Savick in saves it a lot, because I had a few things I would want Valeris to do differently, but Savick is is great, so that's fine. I don't think there's anything I would change on Rura Pente either. I'm surprised they get away with having, like, when Shatner has to fight himself, like, he fights Iman, but she's a shapeshifter. yeah. And there's all this very meta dialogue. like, oh, I can't believe I kissed you. Well, it must have been your lifelong ambition. Like stuff that's clearly directed at Shatner and not at Kirk. <laughs> like I can't figure out how they got away with it, but that's all great. I'm sure like, Shatner just didn't get that it was a joke at his expense. Yeah, maybe. Um, what I this this may be a big one actually. At the end, like at the end of the climactic battle, it's the Enterprise and the Excelsior versus the the bird of prey that can fire while cloaked. And what they do is Uhura gives a line, like, what about all that equipment we have on board to, c- to like, categorize gaseous anomalies? And, you know, we can, we can use it to, like, find the exhaust port of the bird of prey and blow it up. And you're like, what, what, what equipment? <laughs> well, there's a line at the very start of the movie in Sulu's captain's log for the Excelsior, where they're returning from Beta Quadrant, having done exhaustive sub- like re- like your Starfleet stuff on nebulas, and like, gaseous nebulas. I, I don't know for sure, but I'm willing to bet the original script was going to have the Excelsior figure it out. Mm. The Excelsior has the gaseous nebula equipment on board. They can retrofit a torpedo to be gas-homing and blow up the bird of prey. And I... Really like that because the message is like yes, Kirk is you know like they're, the Kirk and the senior staff, the Enterprise, they're still heroes, but they're yesterday's heroes, right? Captain Sulu and his crew on the Excelsior, like that's where we're handing the baton, kinda.
1: Yes, but I do feel like I would miss the the McCoy and Spock doing
0: surgery on the on the torpedo scene. I, Maybe they're on the Excelsior for some reason. I yeah. don't know. There's there's probably a way to do it, but I like that the, you know, like like listen, Kirk is still the hero of this, but this climate, this one thing, this problem solving, that, that Sulu, that 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 the new young captain accomplishes it, and I think that's really powerful as like like to re, like to tell Kirk that like yes, the galaxy is going to be okay without him. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, um, Sh- Shatner would never go for it. <laughs> never. No. Well, he gets to do his his
1: leap to save the Federation president. Uh, You you can have him do that either way.
0: Yeah. Um, But yeah, I want to make that change. And then finally, just at the end there, so as far as anyone knows, Kirk probably assassinated the Klingon chancellor and is now in space prison. And then he beams down to the peace conference, does the bodyguard (laughs) know, saves the president, and as it boor, the, like, the new Klingon chancellor says, like, what's going on here? And he gives a speech about how people are afraid of change, of the future, and, <laughs> and things, it, you know, and, like, it's, but we have to learn to move on. And then that's all that happens. And she looks at him and says, like, you have restored my father's faith. And he answers her, and you have restored my son's you're right you're right it's it's a what what are you talking about how did you be in jail why are starfleet people shooting at each other what faith did david have in (laughs) cleons What what does any of that even mean none of that happens instead everyone just applauds (laughs) yeah that's
1: fair Uh, another small one then are we gonna take the uh the phasers out of the galley
0: yeah, that one's a little strange, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, a little dramatic too. Yeah, little... that, that that scene can be can be changed. Like the the, the whole point scene. of that scene is to establish that you can't just like disintegrate something on the ship. But if somebody says that out loud, I can I'll believe them. I don't yeah. need a demonstration.
1: Yeah, I, it's a fun scene, and it, I feel like it's just a nitpicky Star Trek thing to to ask for it to be taken out, but. Star Trek is nothing if not, you know, you there. in Star Trek, it doesn't make sense for phasers to be there. And it's the kind of show where you want, or
0: franchise, where you want things like that to make sense. Yeah, it's, 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 there's a lot, a lot of material. It's got to be consistent. But yeah, otherwise, I really like this one. I, I think it's also worth pointing out, both Undiscovered Country and Final Frontier, five and six... They're both shot on the set of Star Trek The Next Generation, but Six does a great job of dressing it up. You almost never notice, whereas True. Five, I don't know if it's just a budget thing. It's incredibly clear. It's the exact same set. Uh, like, So I don't know if that's circling back to Five, maybe just injecting a little bit more money to help them correct that would make a huge difference. But, like, it's really... Like, you. if you watch for it in 6, you can pick out, like, okay, their mess is the conference room on the Enterprise-D, but they've gone to a huge effort to disguise it. The transporter pad looks the same, but the console is an old... Like a TOS console, it has all this stuff on the wall, so it looks different. The people in engineering are clearly just standing at Geordie Station, but they film it so you can't see like the rest of the familiar area, and they're all wearing the big radiation suits, so it never occurs to you. We need that applied back to Final Frontier. Yeah, I'll go I'll give you that. Otherwise, oh God, I really like Undiscovered Country. That's a fun movie, and we'll just clean up those little odds and ends there, and I think it becomes a fabulous movie. All right, well, let's not say too much more about how we feel about it. we got to save that for the inevitable top five or thorough ranking of all the Star Trek movies. That's fair. That'll come up one day. <laughs> but, hey, in the meantime... um you know, I think we've got—I mean, we've got a whole new one for five, and a couple of cool things for one and three. I think we've created a, a pretty cool universe here. Um, so that is the first six Star Trek movies, and uh, from here on in, we'll be moving up to Next Generation. I don't know if we'll revisit that right away, but if you enjoyed this and want us to hop to it, let us know. Um, look, we. God, I mean, we're in the hundreds now. We're we're doing this for you guys. We make the things that you want to hear, um, and we love sharing this kind of stuff with you. So we'd love to hear your comments. We'd love to hear what you think about what we said, and if you want to hear more, we'll jump back into next-gen stuff. Graham, how can they get all that to us? Please email us at geektop5 at
1: gmail.com. We're on Facebook, facebook.com slash geektop5, and we're on Twitter at geektop5.
0: Always look forward to hearing from you. Thank you so much for tuning in. Uh, while we're giving out thanks, just want to say our special thanks for our musician, Jamie Rium, the guy behind our theme song. Rium is spelled R-E-A-U-M-E. Check him out at Jamie Reum official and Jamie underscore Reum at YouTube and Instagram, respectively. Um, listen, there's an off chance you haven't seen these movies, most of them, pretty worth watching that's something you can do to keep you busy until we get a chance to talk to you again until then i'm jesse i'm graham and we'll talk to you again next week